Yes, uh, what Winnie said was, I was going, I was like, yep, yep, okay, so I don't need to preach anymore, she just did a great job. Um, yeah, it's, it's very much a, a similar message, so that's pretty awesome. God clearly wants to say something. So, all right, have you ever been busy? Busy enough that, you know, some meal times you don't get a chance to eat, or the kind of busy where it cuts into your sleep. Or maybe it's a kind of busy where a number of people all want your attention at once with expectations that apparently only you can meet and you're also aware that there's another problem screaming at you from nearby. And, you know, you'd feel important from all the attention and how much people need you if you weren't starting to have a brain implosion from the overwhelmedness of it all. I've had it teaching. You may have had it with your work situation or your kids. Jesus has been there. Or you're in trouble. The people in authority are there, your boss and their boss or the government, or the police, or the scary popular kids, or the people who write the rules about how things are. And you, you have broken the rules. Maybe the rules are dumb. Maybe you had your eyes on the big picture. Maybe you were trying to help someone. Maybe you deliberately didn't follow the rules. I've been in trouble. I've been told how it is and what I did was wrong and that I need to shape up or else. Maybe you've had a similar situation. Jesus has been there. Maybe your friends have let you down when you needed them most. Maybe your family don't get you. Maybe everyone's telling you what you should be, but you know that's not you. Maybe you're different and you don't quite fit in. Maybe people are calling you crazy. Maybe people hate you. Jesus has been there. He has been there. Jesus. Do we really know him? Because if we're Christians, which is Christ followers, we are aiming to be like him, so we should know him. And the closer we know someone, the more we know their ways and their habits and what matters to them. Yet I think it is possible to be saved and not know your saviour very well. Uh, To be a follower who does not follow, which is a little bit of a missing of the point, I think. Now, Kirk has been journeying us through Ephesians. And I happen separately to be memorising some verses from Ephesians. And when I break something down to memorise it, I can't help but notice there are certain things that repeat. Uh, like a reference to Jesus in every verse. Um, if you have a look at the Ephesians passage, I know that's very small, but the stuff in yellow and in red is every reference to Jesus. You know, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. Life is in union with Christ Jesus. He's a father of Christ Jesus. We get blessings through our union with Christ Jesus, chosen through our union with Christ Jesus, a lot of union with Christ Jesus. Um, through Jesus Christ, his son, the death of Christ, completed by Christ, Christ is the head. It goes on and on. Everything about being a Christian flows through Jesus. It is all about him. So to follow Jesus closely, we need to know Jesus closely. That was what Winnie was saying. Jesus was saying, know me. And, you know, we know, this shouldn't be a surprise. We know that the correct answer in church is Jesus. Um, But, you know, do we know him? The world's main image are the baby and the cross, Uh, They also feel comfortable with mild, pasty Jesus and cool, friendly Jesus. You know, we might flesh it out more. Uh, You know, the empty tomb, a guy walks on water, a guy talks to crowds, a guy with a lamb on his shoulders. The world, and possibly us, think in comfortable cliches, which are not always accurate or not the complete picture. I doubt a plain-spoken tradie who liked to drink and fishing is the image that comes to many minds when you first say Jesus, unless it's to see who's swearing because they hit their thumb. Um, Yet that is an accurate image, not the swearing, but the plain-spoken tradie. The guy who built your house has more in common with Jesus than this picture. 
And just to put it aside, because it isn't my focus today, Jesus was a real guy. Multiple reliable historical documents uh, separate from the Bible attest to the fact that he lived, he died, and people were following him because they believed he rose again. Even if we didn't have the Bible, we would have, through historical documents, the key facts of Jesus' life available to us. There is no one else of that era and very few people throughout history who have had four detailed accounts of his daily life and death written by eyewitnesses, which is what we have in the Gospels. They're regarded, regarded as so important by so many people that those accounts were carefully and accurately copied over and over so that we can have confidence today that what we read in the, what we read in the Gospels is what really happened. So what I'm going to do is we're going to take a look at a bit, just a bit, of these, one of these eyewitness accounts. I'm not going to look at the whole Gospels. I'm just going to centre in on a couple chapters. You see, I was reading Mark a few weeks ago, and in response to it, um, I was reading Mark 3, in fact, and in response to it, I wrote, meet Jesus. Because in that chapter, if that was all you had, there was so much that you could pick up about him, about his temperament, about his family, his friends, his purpose, his theology, his daily life. But to give context to Mark 3, I want you to open up to Mark 1. So you can do that now. Um, While you're doing that, the book of Mark, I think, is probably my personal favourite of the four Gospels. It has a speedy, breathless journalism. You know, immediately this happened and immediately that happened. Jesus is on the go. Uh, It's very urgent. It's active. It's miraculous. It reminds me of reading news bites on your phone. It has a really modern feeling to it. And so hopefully you've opened to chapter 1 now because I'm going to go through this. I'm not going to read out the verses, so if you have it there, it's good. If Mark is like a journalist, he is one who tells us right off that this Jesus guy is good news. How does it begin? He says, what with a guy shouting in the outback, prepare your hearts, confess, repent. So this shouty guy, John, was a fulfillment of a 750-year-old prophecy or prophecies. So his existence was very exciting to people. Being with him, the people there would have felt connected to something beyond the natural. And he was also creating an atmosphere of expectation. Someone's coming, someone you've been waiting for. Someone who was a fulfillment of even older, thousands of year old prophecies. Jesus is a someone, capital S, beyond the natural. But he's also someone who's going to do a new thing. John himself, so John the Baptist, was a walking symbol announcing a new way. Uh, He violated religious taboos by wearing the skin of an unclean animal. Uh, He was qualified to serve in the temple, yet he's serving in the desert. Because you see, he was inaugurating a new way of living. He's like saying, leave dead religion. The old way is over. Very similar to what we just heard about Hellenic ministries. Just like you dunk your tea bag uh, fully into the water, John was the dunker, fully immersing people in the River Jordan as a sign that they were up for this new life. By dunking people, as John was physicalizing into their heads and understanding, new life, new way, he was preparing the way of Jesus. I've buried you in water, but he, this guy who's coming, will bury you in the spirit of holiness. This is the place where people were because of John the Baptist. So Jesus arrives on the scene. He comes from his family home, Nazareth. Yeah, Jesus has, just like us, a family home. And he gets dunked, ready for a new life. Bam, straight away, things get weird. Voice from heaven, the visible presence of the Holy Spirit. Now that, we don't probably understand, but that would have immediately symbolized to everyone watching that this guy is God's anointed king. You see, when Saul, the first king of Israel, was anointed king, the Spirit came on him in a noticeable way. He starts prophesying and dancing and shouting. Uh, When David was anointed king, uh, the spirit left Saul and came on David and he defeated a giant. 
Jesus? Well, he's immediately compelled into ordeals with wild animals and Satan in the desert, all on a diet of nothing. Now, somebody dealing with wild animals, that tells me he is a tough guy, you know, physically. Jesus is not mild and meek and pasty. He's tough. Uh, He fends off Satan. Okay, well, that tells me he's mentally tough too. And it tells us there are angels. So he's a spiritual guy. So Jesus has got this completeness about his personality, physically, mentally, and spiritually. Whereas, you know, the only guys that this animal, pasty Jesus, is fighting off is a kitty cat. You know, Satan is such a liar. You know, transforming the image of the Lion of Judah, you know, who Winnie was talking about, into that guy. I mean, is is Jesus strong enough to fight your battles? Well, he can fight off wild animals and Satan. I think that's a good start. Uh, Aside, and this is just because I thought it was funny, uh, when you Google Jesus and cats, this is what comes up. I just think it's funny, and I just thought you'd find it funny too. All right. Um, All right, where are we? Galilee. So Galilee is a nexus point geographically. It's a through point for access to three continents. Europe and Asia get to Africa and vice versa via Galilee. Uh, You can actually see it on the left one. You can see how they're almost channeled via Galilee through the mountains um, by going through the valley. This is uh, one of the reasons why Israel is so often a scene of conflict historically because if people controlled that location, they controlled access to three continents. Uh, So because Galilee was on the main road, so to speak, between nations, the people in that area were actually very open to ideas from other places, open to new ideas. So that is where the Holy Spirit has Jesus start preaching. And straight away, the kingdom of God is centre stage. It's time, he preaches, turn your back on your sins and believe this news, the kingdom is arriving. That is Jesus' core activity. That's what he does. He calls people to the kingdom. But he's also a discipler. Uh, He gets four capable guys used to working together in a small business and in a poetical way he says to them, I'm going to transform you and give you a new business. So we know Jesus likes to create word pictures and he's also charismatic because they immediately follow him. Now on the shores of Galilee is the town Capernaum. This is Jesus' home. Like you and I, Jesus had a home, a home base. Now, Nazareth, Nazareth, further east in the hills, may have been where he grew up, but this lakeside town is home now. And it's a nice place. I've actually been there to its well-preserved buildings. There's a lovely view of the water. And the whole Galilee locale has a very Australian, in fact, very Moreton Bay climate. And I actually thought that was really kind of cool, that Jesus, you know, chose to live in the kind of place that we've chosen to live. You know, it's a bit special. So Jesus likes where we live. It's good. All right, so he's home, and he's in community in the synagogue, and he begins teaching. And in response, people are like, whoa, which is not a normal reaction to teaching, trust me. Suddenly screaming. Yeah, it would have been distracting. What are they screaming? Well, for some reason, it's written in a question, as a question in a lot of our translations, but Dr. Brian Simmons says it was a statement. They were screaming, you've come to destroy us, which would have been electrifying. Um, you know, in the middle of church, if somebody, you know, jumped up and said, you're here to destroy us, everyone would be like, what's going on? Uh, they'd wake up. Um, Jesus takes control. He knows his authority. And he actually really reminds me of a teacher in a classroom. Be quiet, go outside. That's how I sound in school. Uh, the implication, which is not said, is I'll deal with you later in my time. Uh, In response, the demon hurls the guy to the floor in crazy spasms and leaves with a shriek. And again, it kind of reminds me of some of the kids I've had who make a fuss when they're told to leave, you know, often with a slam of the door or a punch of the wall. But faced with genuine authority, they do go. 
uh, people would have been bug-eyed. You know, again, whoa, this is a new way. And the news about him spread like wildfire. After sunset, all, not just some, all of the people of the town of Capernaum gather at the house where he is. Needy people from all directions and with the darkness all around, Jesus overturns the normal. Miracles of healing and casting out of many, screaming, we don't know, demons. So it would have been quite an atmosphere in the darkness there. These miraculous healings also further show that Jesus has authority, this time over the physical world. In the presence of Jesus, stuff happens. Miraculous, whoa, stuff. It's not quiet and lovely like pictures of pasty Jesus or cool Jesus. It's noisy and it's messy and it's crazy. Following this, just like those of us with lots to do, Jesus doesn't get much sleep. Uh, He was up late with the peoples. Now he's up early to be with the Father. He prays privately. Jesus needed alone time with God for wisdom and refilling. Now, if Jesus needed to do that, it's probably a good idea for us to do it too. Uh, the four helpers arrive and are like, everyone's looking for you. Do the same thing you did yesterday. But Jesus, coming from prayer, is refocused on his purpose to preach. That's why I came. So he does throughout the region. And the passage tells us there were more healings and deliverance. So probably the same craziness and whoa, repeated over and over until a key event happens. A desperate leper comes to him. Jesus, in an unplanned demonstration of how new this new way is, breaks the rules and touches the unclean man in a 180 degree reversal of religious rules and death to which the world is subject he makes the unclean clean now this idea of clean and unclean is key to understanding the old way that people are in in that culture clean and separated from unclean was linked to God and holiness and being separated from sin The Israelites were a separated people. It was intrinsic to all the rules and regulations that they followed daily, weekly, yearly, and Jesus overturns that with a touch. Pharisee, for example, means separated one. But Jesus, unlike them, he isn't separated. He's in close. He's amongst them, the people, all the sin and the brokenness. And it's the same with how he is with us. His presence makes the unclean clean. So to the leper, Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And in an experience uh, familiar to teachers and parents alike, his instructions are immediately ignored and disobeyed. The man cannot help himself. His reaction to meeting Jesus is, he has to talk about Jesus everywhere. The result of this guy, the leper event, is boom. Jesus is famous. He can only go now into villages in secret. He has to go out to the outback. Now everybody actually has to come to him. He can't go to them. So chapter one is Jesus gets famous. We've established a picture of a guy who is out of the ordinary, charismatic, well-rounded physically, mentally, spiritually, who has authority and is a miraculous, but also, like us, had a home, uh, dealt with messiness and busyness and neediness, didn't always have time to eat, and relied on God for guidance. So after a bit of this, Jesus heads home and the crowds are crazy. He is bigger than the Beatles, who are bigger than Jesus, so yeah. Um, Now, religious scholars, the people in power, are present, so They weren't before, now they are. And they are checking him out. So, you know, anyone here who's a conspiracist, Jesus understands you. He knows what it's like to have the government watching him. So the crowds are like so packed that the desperate and resourceful friends of a paraplegic lower him through the roof, which does mean digging through the roof. Jesus is impressed. This is a recurring thing about Jesus. Like like us, he has favourite things. And he loves audacious faith. I can almost hear him saying, this, this is what I get up for. 
and now he does something significant, and it isn't making the guy walk. He rewinds time. He goes back to before the law and all its rules and separation for humans and their relationship with God. He goes all the way back to Abraham. Now, in Romans 4.3, Paul tells us Abraham believed by faith and God accepted him as righteous. Not by sacrifices, not by being clean and separated, not by following the rules, by faith. And in Mark 2.3, Jesus, seeing how much faith they had, said, My son, your sins are forgiven. You have faith and I accept you as righteous. So it really isn't any wonder that the power people are not impressed because Jesus is stating as clear as day, I'm doing what only God can do. We've had clean and unclean, but this is a further upending of the entire law way of relating with God that the Israelites have been trying to make work since Sinai. This is the new way of the kingdom. So they are offended. That is not how this works. You know the rules. Only God can, convict, can forgive and accept someone as righteous. Uh, Jesus, reading their minds, I should add, so let's just add that to the list of cool things that Jesus can do, is like, well, you know, I can back my game. So you know I have both God's authority and power. Be healed. And the man was, and the people then went out of their minds with woe. Now, a lot of the time we read the passage, like they're amazed. No, we need to understand these people were like, oh my goodness. So it's chapter two and Jesus is indicating he's God. It's very early on. And as C.S. Lewis said, really there are only three options with people who say they are God and genuinely believe it. They're lying, they're crazy, or they're God. And the four gospels very clearly show the integrity of Jesus' character. Even his opponents later on in one of the other gospels say, we know you never lie. People at the time, including his family, as I'll show later, definitely thought he was crazy. But the writings we have show him as lucid and sane. And even today, his teachings are regarded worldwide as wise. And as we've just read, Jesus backs his statement of divinity with power. The immediate result at the time is further crazy, massive crowd. So what does he do? He teaches. That's his purpose. And he chooses his fifth buddy. And I think the word tax collector has lost its meaning for us, uh, particularly in Australia where we have pay-as-you-go, so you never really get the money anyway. Uh, so let's freshen this. Who is Jesus' new buddy? He's a parasite. He's a guy who profits from the suffering of others, a traitor and an unclean person. These days, the equivalent to how we might feel about this person might be a drug or a slave trafficker or an Australian citizen who sells secrets to another country or a, a pimp. It's like Jesus is trying to offend people here. And as his followers, our different way may very well offend people too. But Jesus is Holy Spirit-led and he's obedient. He goes to this guy's house and he shares a meal, which is a very, very intimate thing to do in that culture. Uh, in fact, Jesus, in the pattern of not keeping himself separate, shares a meal at the table with many kinds of people, notable sinners. You know, what sort of outcast friends might a drug dealer or pimp have? I know that cartoon is, cartoon sort of, you know, does have about tax collectors and sinners, but it is slightly irrelevant, but hopefully it will wake you up if you're asleep. It's a long, long day. Um, but what sort of outcast friends might a drug dealer or a pimp have? Well, in an action that speaks about the kingdom, it's an action that speaks about the kingdom. It tells people what Jesus' kingdom, what heaven is like and who it's open to. Okay, he's, he's in heaven, just like on earth, he's going to be at the table with all sorts of people. And this indicates the integrity of character Jesus had. He is who he is, on earth as it will be in heaven. Now, the law experts and the powerful, the politically correct, naturally take offence, because that's what politically correct people do. 
Um, and Jesus tries to help them grasp how his kingdom is different. He won't be defiled by being with them. He, in fact, will make them clean. He's calling the defiled and desperate to change, the ones who see they need him. Now, around this point, there is a question about why Jesus' followers don't fast. Fasting was a sign that people were trying to get near to God, and it was a very public thing in those days. Jesus' disciples didn't need to get near to God. They were near to God in the form of Jesus. It was another symbolic action pointing to the fact that he's God, and this is the new kingdom. That's what he's also referring to with his imagery about the clothes and the wineskins when you read the passage. He's telling them, don't mix the old with the new. This is a new kingdom, a new age in history, so it has new ways. So if chapter one was Jesus is whoa and gets famous, chapter two makes clear this very new way of the kingdom. But we also see more of Jesus' character. You know, he has favourite things. He has integrity. He's obedient, but a tradition breaker. He's upending the old for the new way, and he's also God. A God saying he wants a real relationship, not rules, even if it offends some people. And to finish chapter 2, it sets the scene for chapter 3, which is one day in the life of Jesus. So it's a Sabbath, like Sunday for us, and they're on their way to their equivalent of church. And they pick up some ears of corn the way we might pick up some Maccas. Jesus can relate to our busy lifestyles. And the judgy judges are still watching. You're breaking our traditions. And later at the synagogue, they're still watching Jesus closely. A modern equivalent, oddly enough, is Trump. Now, Trump is more like the crude, willful Nebuchadnezzar than Jesus. But the way that the journalists are watching Trump closely to see, can we catch you out, find a reason to criticise you, is similar. It's this critical spirit of hate and jealousy. And Jesus had to deal with that. In this situation, the issue was whether he would heal a guy on the Sabbath. The Pharisees' human rules said, that's work. God said, rest on the Sabbath, so don't do it. Uh, what Jesus is facing here is their entire system of life. There are rules, and everyone has to follow them. That's almost what being an Israelite is at this point. And these guys are the rule keepers. That's their identity. So if Jesus heals this guy, he is defying their power, their authority, their identity, and that of the whole system. He was under pressure. Jesus had to deal with pressure. But Jesus turns it back on them. He takes control of the situation. He's smart and he's fearless because that would have been a pretty intense situation. He asks a question that they can't or won't answer. Uh, and the Gospels record that Jesus asked questions that left the smartest people of the time stumped. Jesus is a smart guy. Our culture doesn't find intelligence that cool. But if you are a Jesus follower, it is okay to be smart. He's also emotional. He's angry at them and he's sorry for them at the same time. The Gospels record Jesus as being a pretty emotionally open guy. He has the feels all the time. He's grief-stricken, exuberant, impatient with injustice, free with praise, and on it goes. In Western culture, we can feel a little bit uncomfortable with emotions. You know, when we cry, we say sorry or try to hide it. Um, people get embarrassed if someone's passionate about something other than sport or entertainment. But Jesus got passionate. He was open about his feelings. So if you're an emotional, I got the feels person, it's okay. You are following your master's footsteps. Now he was frustrated because they were so stubborn and so wrong. Jesus had to deal with frustrating, obstinate people who are unwilling to learn. He gets what it's like to deal with teenagers. <laughs> So what does he do? Well, what does Jesus always do? He heals the guy. Jesus is compassionate and merciful. He's not going to leave the guy paralyzed. But he has defied the Pharisees and their system that they protect and they leave abruptly. It would have been very noticeable. People would have been like, ooh, did you just see that? Mm. 
and they plot to kill him because there is a confrontation with powers going on here. And Jesus isn't playing nice going with the flow. He is confrontational and we are his followers. When we turn the other cheek, it isn't because we're passive or weak. It's because we're showing we're willing to take a hit. When we, when we stand our ground or are moving forward for something we believe in and know is right, that's who we are. Jesus and his team, meanwhile, head for the lake, and the crowd that follows is larger than before. The places that Mark lists make it clear that people are coming from a long way away, from north, south, east, and west. People with expectations of him. They wanted him to do miracles for them, fix their problems. Now, if you, so if you feel that ever people have high expectations of you, Jesus relates. And the crowd is crazier than ever. People are pushing forward. Demons are screaming, throwing people down. It's a crazy, messy atmosphere. It's such a large crowd, he has to get on a boat so he won't be crushed. And we think our lives are crazy. Jesus gets it when we have messiness in our lives, the screaming needy kids. Jesus be like, lots of people, one me. I need help. Because he was human, remember. So he chooses 12 helpers. Jesus models delegation for us. We don't have to do it all on our own. Jesus didn't. I think 12 helpers sounds great. Um, So he gives them the task of hanging out with him, which to me sounds awfully like friendship. Um, Teaching and demon delivering, for which he gives them some of his authority. As I contemplate Jesus' messy life, his willingness to delegate, the expectations people have, I think, you know, he sounds like a real person. I grow sympathetic to his situation as I imagine he is to mine. He also makes choices that people criticise. And I find that very relatable. Uh, Even in the passage it says, okay, so he picked these 11 guys, and oh, Judas, the betrayer, the implication being, good one, Jesus. Um, (laughs) He was no doubt obeying God. You know, when we, like Jesus, follow God's prompting, it may lead us to choices that may not, like Jesus did, had uh, end up perfectly, but God was still in it. And I think that takes some of the pressure off when we're making choices and we're going, oh God, is this you? Probably is. Just follow him. It may not look perfect, but God is still in it. What I also get from this is that Jesus chose people. It reminds me that this is the God who chose me, who chose us. We are chosen. I mean, it's all very well to hear God loves the world, but it becomes more personal when you consider that you are chosen to be his. Like sporting teams and reality TV shows, you were picked. Uh, Ephesians 1 says, even before the world was made, you were chosen to be his. That Jesus chose people, that he chose me, endears him to me. And also endearing is his sense of humour and fun. Out of the 12 disciples, a quarter of them get nicknames, the Noisy Boys and Rocky. Um, you know, that's a, that's a fun guy. So to finish the chapter and the day, Jesus leaves the lake sign and heads home and we get a further sense of his peaceful Sabbath. So if you're someone who finds Sunday tiring rather than a rest day, oh, Jesus gets it. Because he may be home, but it's still crazy. People are everywhere. Jesus and his delegates have no time to eat. And this week when I worked through lunch and dinner, it was a comfort to know that Jesus had been there. And even better, oh, important, smart people, people with authority have arrived from Head Central and they're telling everyone, this guy, this Jesus, he's Satan-possessed. That's not good. And to top it off, his family. Yes, like us, Jesus had one of those. Having heard people say, hey, uh, your son, your brother, he's gone cray-cray, have arrived to put him in the first century version of mental care. So if your family relationships aren't perfect and things are crazy at work and people are criticising you and your reputation with the important people and authority is suffering, Jesus has been there. 
And as a tongue-in-cheek inside, when that Jesus family does arrive with their own agenda asking for him, he puts them off. A model for all of us when the family gets a bit much. Stay locked in the loo. Have that shower. Pretend you're not at home when the in-laws arrive. Keep doing what you need to do. I think I'm being tongue-in-cheek, but you know, you know, Jesus did it. All right. Um, so seriously, how does Jesus respond to all of this? Well, he responds without fear to the important people. He addresses their, you're filled with Satan, claims, and refutes these smart people, that's what the teachers of the law were, with logic and insight. His response also tells us a few more things about Jesus, that he believes Satan is real and has a kingdom. Uh, The bit about the binding of the strong man foreshadows what Jesus will do at the cross, which tells us he wants to set free all those Satan has taken captive. And when when he talks about the Holy Spirit, we learn that Jesus will stand up strongly for someone he cares for deeply, in this case, the Holy Spirit, because that is who is in him, not Satan. And finally, we're told we are his family. Chapter 3 could be summarised as one crazy day of rest. It reveals a Jesus who faced expectations, pressure, criticism, trouble with authority, jealousy, hatred, frustrating people, imperfect family, with intelligence, humour, practical delegation, compassion, courage, emotional openness and probably hunger. As we've seen in these chapters, Jesus experienced normal human things. This was a real guy living in a real world just like we are. He gets it. But Mark, and wider in the Gospels, also shows us something we might forget. Jesus was an individual with his own unique, complex personality. You know, we saw he's a hard worker. He's someone who can handle lots of people, but he's also someone who needed alone time. And all the introverts say, yay. Uh, He had a sense of fun. He could be blunt. Uh, He was deeply compassionate and passionate. Uh, He was a very emotionally real guy. He was authentic. He was who he was. He was unimpressed with fakery. He liked a meal. He wasn't always punctual, for which I go, yay. Uh, Not an advertiser, but, you know, one willing to choose the hard, humble way. He wasn't stressed about money. You know, go 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 fishing. We'll get the money that way. Uh, He didn't back down from conflict. He treated women with unusual equality for his time. He liked kids. He was furious with anything that got between people and God. Just on that basis, this is a guy worth getting to know. Like Winnie told us, get to know Jesus. But he was also unusually intelligent. He was a master teacher and storyteller, and he knew his Bible intimately. He was unusually popular. He was so charismatic, people could listen to him for days. Or is your guy, is she finished? Yes, I am nearly finished. Uh, And he did unusual things, miracles that freaked people out. Now it's getting intimidating. You know, he's admirable, he's brilliant, he's caring, he's brave, he's wildly popular, and he coped with all the crazy, all the pressure, all the wild animals without sinning. How do you follow someone like that? Well, Jesus made a way. He sacrificed his life, he conquered death, and he made a way for us to follow, and then gave us his authority and the Holy Spirit. He lived as much like us as he could, he sacrificed his life, and he gave us his God advantages. He's not just someone worthy of admiring, of knowing, of following. He is adorable, worthy of adoration. He's lovable, someone irresistibly drawing our love. Someone dies for you, that's a pretty compelling thing to do. Because you see, that's what Satan is trying to hide in pasty Jesus and cool Jesus and every other simplification about Jesus. In every way that he tries to tell us, oh, you know who Jesus is, when perhaps we need to look more closely What God was saying to me, this is my word from God, was know my son. And so when Winnie said, 
what Jesus is saying is to you, know me. I was like, well, that's my... Uh, put aside any wrong views or the things in the way because how you see Jesus affects how you trust, love and worship him. So one final thought. Yes, Jesus is sacrificial and kind like the pasty picture. And yes, he was a human who lived a real life as we see in Mark and the Gospels. But if we slip into the future shown in Revelation, we get the wide angle shot. That this tradey friend of fishermen is also, just like Winnie said, the Lion of Judah, God himself. The one who, through whom and for whom everything was made. The one in who and under who everything in heaven and on earth will be brought together. He is preeminently worthy of our adoration and worship and love and worth taking the time to know very well. Revelation. And then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True. It is with justice that he judges and fights his battles. His eyes were like a flame of fire and he wore many crowns on his head. He had a name written on him, but no one except himself knows what it is. The robe he wore was covered in blood and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven followed him, riding on white horses and dressed in clean white linen. Out of his mouth came a sharp sword with which he will defeat the nations. He will rule over them with a rod of iron and he will trample out the wine in the winepress of the furious anger of the almighty God. On his robe and on his thigh was written the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who controls the kingdoms of this world? It's Jesus. It's not Trump or Putin or China or the EU. There may be terrorists and nuclear weapons and a destabilising in Australia of ancient societal foundations. But fear not that our nation or the nations rage against us. Jesus is in charge. Let us encourage one another as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus that his and our ultimate victory is assured. So, as we move into a time of ministry... Do you need to reframe your view of Jesus? Do you need to do business with him about how you haven't given him his full worth? I learned a lot from writing this. I was like, oh, I don't really actually know you, Jesus, as well as I thought. It led me to want to kneel. Remember what I said before. God is saying, know my son. Put aside, you know, the wrong way of looking at him. Because how you see Jesus affects how you trust, love and worship him. Uh, as, as, you know, was said earlier um, when Winnie spoke, if you are sick and troubled and have worries, if you're dealing with a depression or anxiety, things you're dealing with, or just trying to deal with the... And this is actually one of the points that came up here um, on these ones for sickness. If you are having trouble uh, with, you know, what's going on in society and the way that... Um, how to respond to, you know, everybody's opinions about, you know, the current debates and, and cultural issues in society... Um, Jesus is the one we can bring that to. He has dealt with that pressure and he is also our powerful God. Um, so what I might do is, uh, if you would like to stand...